Hey guys, today's episode with Andrew McCarthy was recorded live on stage, which means the audio can at times be sketchy, particularly for a 10-minute stretch in the middle of this episode. I figured having echoey audio was better than having no audio at all, so I left it in. Just a heads up about that. Here it is. Yeah, it's great. In one of your earliest emails to me, you said, I love Kansas. I, and, I said, <laughs> and I said, Andrew, nobody ever says that. That's so true. Explain. We are the well, no, our I, dog. It's I, my memory of Kansas is, uh, and I had the best time. I had the best yes, time of two films, one in Kansas, one in Paris. So, yes. <laughs> nice work. So in the, Paris, the two with great Paris. Yeah, exactly. Welcome to DVA with Rolf Potts. Today's episode is a remix of a live event I did with actor and travel writer Andrew McCarthy earlier this month. And what you just heard was a bit of ambient audio just minutes before we took the stage at the Crown Uptown Theater in my childhood hometown of Wichita. Andrew was there to promote his new book, Walking with Sam, which recounts a 500-mile hike he took across Spain's Camino de Santiago pilgrimage road with his 19-year-old son. I hosted the event for an enthusiastic crowd of 300 people, and I've left in the ambient sounds of what it was like to record it on stage. Together, Andrew and I talked about how a walk on the Camino changed his life back when he did it for the first time in 1994, and why he chose to go back with his 19-year-old son Sam just after the pandemic a couple years back. We talk about Andrew's background as a young actor in what became known as Brat Pack movies in the 1980s, and how he remembers those movies now. We talked about Andrew's pivot into travel writing, and how you can write about your travel experiences in a way that makes people want to keep on reading. We talked about how travel on foot has a way of keeping you in the present moment and how recognizing moments of happiness in the moment is more satisfying than simply seeing moments of happiness in retrospect. The interview starts with us walking on stage in Wichita and taking a selfie with the audience before our conversation begins. Let's listen in. Wait, I want to take a picture. Oh, leave the lights up. Come on, Rolf, get in All here. Right. One sec, we do a selfie. Thank you. I think I'll start the conversation. I think you're mostly here to listen to Andrew, and I want to sort of put him on the map in this conversation by talking about how he came on my radar in two different ways in two different decades. The first time I knew who Andrew McCarthy was was in 1986. And all the girls at Hadley Junior High had these little tiger beat posters of this guy. As you can see. <laughs> he was in a movie called Pretty in Pink. And I was so jealous. I was so jealous because I was almost five foot five. I just perm my mullet. I didn't know what I could possibly see in someone who was not me. So I went and I saw the movie and um, actually he was really good. There was, there, was, there was sort of a masculinity that came out of that movie that wasn't common in movies at the time. And it was a John Hughes movie that took teenagers serious at a time when um, movies didn't always take teenagers so serious. And I think like, there was an appeal of Andrew's work that made smart girls feel seen. They wanted to hang out in the same room as Andrew McCarthy. That was jealousy event number one. Number two is that in 2010, um, I've been a travel writer since about 1998. And every year I pay attention to the Lowell Thomas Awards, which are the big travel writing awards in America. And in 2010, this guy, the travel journalist of the year, was this guy named Andrew McCarthy. So I asked my friend um, Farley, who's this Andrew McCarthy? He's like, oh, you know Andrew McCarthy, the actor. I'm like, no, not the actor, the travel writer who won the, who won the award this year. And he's like, no, the actor. And it led into this, this loop, sort of like, um, not, um, 
Abbott Costello, who was on first night for the team. And I eventually realized that it really was the actor who had won the highest honor in travel writing in the year 2010, and that seems really unfair, too. Because I think, I'm going to go. I think, Andrew, before that year, I didn't see you as fully human. I saw you as this 1980s pop culture figure, sort of like Joe Montana or Bruce Springsteen. And it was as if I was an aspiring chef, and chef of the year suddenly was Joe Montana or Bruce Springsteen. And so you, um, Scott Fitzgerald said that there are no second acts in American lives, but you had this delightful second act. Um, and I feel like that is connected by a very important experience in your life in 1994 that is sort of the backstory to your new book. So that's my preamble of asking you about your first experience on the Camino and why it became a memorable experience for you. Well, that's a lot there, Ralph. Um, well, I have to say, um, to segue into Pretty in Pink here for a minute, um, I was, they didn't want to let me audition for Pretty in Pink movie because um, it was written for a sort of square-shouldered, broad-shouldered, square-jawed quarterback punk guy, and that was not me. And I heard they gave me a courtesy audition, and I walked into the audition room, and Molly Ringwald was in the room reading with people, and I read my little scene, and they went, thank you. I walked out, and Molly turned to John as I walked out, and she said, that's the song. And John Hughes says, that went. <laughs> so see, we end on this dreaming. You know, that's who I would fall for. And so, and to John Hughes' credit, he listened to Molly, which is what you alluded to. John took young people seriously and, you know, listens. And so, anyway, that was that. That's the part of that. And, of course, and um, yes, travel writing changed my life. And it did give me a second act, creatively a second act. And it started, as you said, with the Camino. Um, I was in, around then, 94, I was hanging around a bookstore, because I'm an actress, that means I'm unemployed most of the time. So I was hanging around a bookstore, killing time, and I came across a book by a fellow named Jack called Off the Road. And I always mention this because Jack had changed my life, and I've never met him. And that's the test in the power of books, right? They can change lives, you know, and that, that changed mine. And it was about, and I just picked this book up random, and it was about this guy who quit his job and walked, you know, sublet his apartment and walked 500 miles across Spain on the ancient Camino de Santiago, which for those of you who aren't familiar, he's a, um, it's an ancient pilgrimage group, started in the ninth century when the Catholic Church said that the bones of the Apostle James has been discovered in the farther and western horse of the Iberian Peninsula. Anyone who marched there, would get half their time in purgatory knocked off. Which, you know, that's a good deal, right? So, so the fate fate came on me, walking. And uh, it was also, frankly, about real estate, because Islam had taken over the Iberian Peninsula and the church wanted it back. So they said, while you're crossing Spain to get your almighty soul purged and clean, kick out those damn wars. And so it's beginning to crusade, it's like it's all its gory, bloody history. And it worked, and, you know, they got Spain back for the Catholic Church, and they've had it ever since. So, anyway, none of that was of any interest to me. But something in this author's story touched me, and I think I was at a point in my life, it was after that early blush of success with all those movies and things, and I think I was a bit lost without even knowing I was lost in a certain way. And so when I looked at this book and the story, I just said, I'm doing that, I'm going, I'm going to Spain. And this was early 90s, right? There was no internet. I didn't know anything about the Camino. I didn't know anybody who'd done the cleanup. 
and there's no internet to look at the only one on the internet was Al Gore, right? And so, um, anyway, so the author says, the back of said the author worked at Harper's Magazine, so I called up Harper's Magazine, and I said, I want to talk to Jack Schick, please. And they went, oh, one moment. And this is when people used to work at offices, right? And uh, he came on the phone, and he says, Jack Schick. I'm like, oh, hi, uh, Jack. Um, you don't know me, but I read your book. And he was like, you read my book? <laughs> he was, he was thrilled. Anyway, I know the feeling. Anyway, so he told me what to do, which is basically just to go to Spain and start walking. And, um, and it requires very good sense of direction, I will tell you, because there, for 500 miles, all you do is follow yellow arrows across the country. They're painted on rocks, on trees, on the pavement, and you just follow. It's very difficult to get lost, although I managed to get lost a few times. Anyhow, so I was walking and I hated it. It was awful. Every day was worse than the day before. And I was with this and I was lonely, and it was just a terrible experience. And halfway through the, the Camino, there's this thing called the Hadassah, which is these fields of wheat for days. It's to the horizon, just too weak, as I'm sure you're familiar with. Us in the morning, this is like a deal. But anyway, so place it back here. So anyway, it goes on for days and days, and I was not used to this. And so, and, like the third day of walking through these wheat fields, I just suddenly found myself on my knees, sobbing, and in this rageful tantrum. And I didn't know why I was on my knees, sobbing, all alone in this field of wheat. And slowly my tears subsided, and it occurred to me as I sat there, this realization kind of welled up inside me, that I realized how afraid I had been in my life, always. Like, I, I had never been aware of fear's existence in my life until that moment of its first absence. My wife is Irish, they all these big Irish sayings, and one of them is, I felt like myself from the toes up. And sitting there, I feel we have broken down into sobs, I suddenly lifted with fear. Don't worry, it's not going to turn into an open thing, but I, I suddenly felt like myself from the toes up, you know, and I felt like, oh, here I am. And I had that feeling once before in my life, when I was 15 years old and I was talking to high school basketball team, and my mom, I'm rambling, Ralph, you'll have to stop. When my mom says, why don't we try out um, for the school play here? I said, I don't want to be in the school play, I want to be the point guard. And anyway, I did try out for the school play, and I was passed as the Artful Dodger and Oliver, and since none of you were there, I can tell you I was absolutely brilliant. And, and I was, in the sense that, I walked out on stage and it was exactly, I felt like myself from the toes up. And in that instant, I knew what I would do with my life. And I had the, the blessing of being young enough to not know anything is impossible. So I just went in that direction. And that's what happened to me. And then I felt the same way again in Spain. And so after that moment in Spain, I kept, I skipped across the rest of the country. What had been a struggle the first half was suddenly buoyant, romping across the country. And, um, I kept traveling then, and I kept traveling the world alone. And so, and then eventually I began to write about it. Yeah. And then I began to write for magazines about it, and that became that career. You went back to the Camino with your son, Sam. Obviously, this book is Walking with Sam. Um, actually, I haven't talked to you since you've done that. And I remember having a conversation with you a few years ago where you said, um, I'm not sure what it would be like to walk the Camino again with a smartphone. You, you sort of expressed um, satisfaction that you'd done it before you had the opportunity to distract yourself. Um, and then another conversation we had 
was that if you had one thing to save you know, your house from your house in a fire, it might be your scallop from the Camino the first time, <laughs> which is pretty telling. That's like a travel souvenir. Your house is on fire, and the one thing you take is this relic from your first pilgrimage, for lack of a better word, across the Camino. That's a beautiful book Ralph wrote about these anyway. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, so, so I'm curious, what brought you back? I, I had the sense that you were going to go back, but you went back with your son. Was that the plan? Or how did you end up with this Gen Z kid who probably is tethered to his smartphone? Well, I did always want to go back again because I found it so life-changing that day. You know, there was some before that day in the wheat and then this and after my life. You know, fear doesn't just go away once you discover it, but nothing can hold a sway over you once you discover, you know, what it is. So, you know, I began a relationship away from fear in that way that has been ongoing for the rest of my life. And so I've always wanted to go back to the Camino because it was such a profound experience to me the first time. And as we were coming out of the pandemic, I, you know, we've been bombarded with so much fear during the pandemic. I really kind of went, wow, I need kind of a booster shot against fear again. So I jokingly said I grew up in the Camino. And then my son was 19 years old and he was starting out into the world on his own. And when I was 17, I left home and my relationship with my dad in essence ended right there. And I'd say it's one of the biggest regrets of my life. We reconciled as he was dying near the end of his life, and it was a profound experience for me, and I was grateful to have that opportunity, but I'd missed all those years in between for, you know, I don't know if it could have been other, because that's who we were, and, but anyway, I didn't want that, that relationship with my kids. I, I, and so, I, so, as my son was reaching age where they go, you go out into the world, he was sort of becoming more remote from us, the way teenagers do, and then he had a girlfriend, and then he was gone. You know, it was sort of like, and I realized, oh my God, has it already happened? Has I lost Sam? And then, as fortune would have it, his girlfriend broke up with him. <laughs> and so being a, a parent, I pounced at that moment. And I said, um, hey, Sam, you, you want to walk the Camino? And he was like, whatever. And I literally walked onto the bench and bought two, tank, two plane tickets, and two days later we were walking in Spain. Because I knew if he had time to think about it, he would change his mind, of course. And so, and sure enough, on day two, he said to me, as we're trudging up the Pyrenees Mountains, he said, Dad, what is the point of this effing walk? You know, and he didn't say effing, you know? So, and then he would have scrolled the book to save the trouble reading it on the last day. He said to me, well, it's about the journey. We all know that. Um, the last day, he said, Dad, that's the only 10 out of 10 thing I've ever done in my life. You know, so there's, there's a profound thing that you know, has a strong effect. And uh, anyway, and I wanted, to, I wanted to use the trip as a way to, you know, as parents, we think we know our kids. You know, they look like us, they kind of sound like us, and some of our mannerisms, we just think they're kind of like us, and they're not. As we know, but we don't really behave in that way often. And so I wanted to get to see my son and let him see me. You know, not just a parent-child relationship, because he was no longer going to tolerate that. He's 19 years old, he needed something else from me. And since I had an template of how to do that, really, with my own father in life, I thought him the community had been so profound in my experience, and I knew that walking this kind of thing, at least I'd have the ultimate luxury that any parent has with an adult child, which is time, right? Usually, you know, kids are running out the door, like, hey, you want to have sushi? Okay, see but, you know, I had time, so I didn't have to be wise and profound. I didn't have to take advice or counsel. I just walked with my son and let him process. Like, my son, if you sit him down and talk, you don't get very far. You're not going to get much. But you get him moving. 
it all starts coming out. And, you know, every day I would start walking and, I, and he had a lot to process with his heartache, you know. And we would start walking and I would just walk. I'd say, don't say anything. Just keep your mouth shut in. And whether it took five minutes or an hour and a half, I would go. And then I was going off and go, you know, and I would just receive him. You know, and, and anyway, that's, that's where it came from. And uh, yeah, that was an important thing to me. And that, that, that was my goal in the trip. See each other because that's been a big deal in my life, you know. I was a member of as many of you know this thing called the Brat Pack, and they engage all those movies. And it's now the Brat Pack has come to be this iconically affectionate term representing this group in a moment of time in pop culture, you know. And it's so love it and looked back on with these rose colored glasses. And when people come up to me, when like you come up to me and start talking, oh, pretty pink, I love it, and it's lovely, but often what I see. Their eyes glaze over, and really they're talking. They're not talking to me anymore, but talking to your own youth. And I've come to represent and be an avatar of the youth of the sister generation. And of that moment in time, you know, there's no more potent, powerful moment in life when you're 18, 19 years old, and you're just going out and... It's John you know, there's no more potent moment in life when, when you know, your life is a blank slate and written upon when you're that age. It's just so exciting. And, you know, and the older we get, the more we look back on that with a certain fondness. And, you know, those college years or whatever, you know, we have such affection for our youth as we get older. And that I've come to represent that as, to a certain generation, a demographic of a certain generation. It's kind of a beautiful thing. But that took me decades to embrace, you know, because when it happened, the Brat Pack was a very negative term. It was cast in the Spurs. It was a New York one magazine article that you know called a group of young actors the Brat Pack. It's a very negative kind of term, and we all hated it at the time. And I felt instantly unseen because who wants to be called a brat and who wants to be in a pack? And it was a very negative kind of judgmental thing, and we hated it. And like I say, it's hard to re reconcile that with what it's become over all these decades, but. I instantly felt when that label was leveled, unseen. I said, because my life was just like I was just talking about, just starting my career, having this wonderful, wondrous moment happening in my life, and suddenly somebody's calling me a brat pack, and I'm like, what? And I felt like I instantly lost the narrative of, lost control of the narrative of my career, and in many ways my life, because my life, I am the result of having been in the brat pack. You know, it was, and everything that's happened since then has been an outgrowth of that, the first part of any introduction will always be at the Brat Pack McCarthy. You know, which is, like I say, a beautiful thing because it's so embraced now, but that wasn't always the case. And so the idea of being seen and like just seeing, what's all we ever want really to see me, hear me, see me, who I am. You know, that's a deep thing. And having not felt that way in my youth, it was very important. So it's been an important thing in my life to sort of try and acknowledge that now. So, and I wanted to be able to see my son, and conversely, like can see me, which is, you know, make ourselves vulnerable in front of our children, can be, you know, not the norm. How did walking, you know, they say that side-by-side -side intimacy is sort of what dudes do, you know. Instead of talking face-to-face, -face, you, you were side-by-side, -side. but it feels like this was good in the father-son sense, and that you could be side-by-side -side walking, and then suddenly when Sam wants to, to share a bit, you can share it. There's less pressure. So how did the walk itself and the task was ritualistically walking as many as 20, 30 miles a day. 
um, play into the relationship and the conversation you were having with your now adult son? Well, I think like walking is walking is a really profound thing. I think it's a natural rhythm that which we were meant to process and meant to think and meant to feel. You know, we've gotten so away from it, but it is a natural. It is the prophet tempo and rhythm for internal discoveries. I mean, there's so many famous writers through all the years, and there's all these great witty quotes about how powerful walking is. I'm sure we've all experienced it. You know, you're trying to solve a problem, and you suddenly go out for a walk, and you come back, and that's right in the middle of your walk when you're not even thinking about it anymore. It creates internal space. And, and the notion of going toward something, going toward a goal and stepping toward it each day. You know, we didn't just go for some random walk, we were going toward something, you know, and that was, very, as a young man, I had very great difficulty finishing anything. And I, I noticed in my son too that he had difficulty sort of committing and seeing things through. And it was really, that changed my life when I went to Santiago and I got there. You know what I mean? That made me realize I turned my way across the country, as I say in the beginning of this book. And that was a big deal for me. And no one could take it away from me. It was a literal and emotional and spiritual accomplishment, you know? And so, yes, the idea there's something about, I think people often in cars, too, can have conversations. Just they're looking and there's stuff going on, you know, you can sit there and look at each other and you can have your own. And in walking also, you can have, we could have a conversation that on paper would read for five minutes, but that might take place over three hours while we're walking. You know what I mean? You're sort of walking and talking and kind of drifting in silence and you need to go through your own process and stuff. And then I thought, and then you're back, and it was 20 minutes later, you know, and then you both act like not, nothing had happened because you're sort of in this thing together. You know, so I think walking is highly uh, underrated. Uh, we just got away from it. I think there's a lot of value in it. I, I used to think of walking as a slowest way to get anywhere, and now I kind of see it as the event itself in many ways. I'm curious to know how. Sam's attitude transformed because he did go from what the F are we doing to 10 out of 10 over the course of the walk. And a lot of the lines in the book, Sam gets pretty zen. You know, he's sort of talking about experiencing the present moment. And you talk a little bit about happiness and how you've slowly learned to experience, happy, to understand happiness while it's happening instead of something that happens in retrospect. Yeah, that was, I, that, that took me a long time. I realized I was so, all that happened in hindsight. I was so happy. I didn't feel about that. But yeah, yeah, it's a real, when, when the people that believe that, and actually it's novelty, and they're happy, it's so double happiness. happiness, and it's, you know, anyhow, um, yes, and I'm kind of just, you know, he, he walked into himself, that's the only way I could say it, you know, he walked home to himself. You know, I knew I had a book when we were, um, you know, I'm a travel writer, so I'm always taking notes, because you know you're going to write about everywhere you go at some point, in some ways, so I was sort of taking these random notes and writing stuff down, and then, as you walk to Santiago, it's 500 miles across Spain, and it ends at this cathedral in Santiago de Compostela. But that's about 50 miles from the ocean, and so many people feel compelled to continue on to the sea, to a place called Finisterre, and with Latin. And I did not feel compelled to But my son, either time, I, like, I got to Santiago, I am sitting down. But my son, when he learned of this place called Finisterre, walking to the sea, he said, I'm walking to the sea, I'm doing that. Come with me, Dad. I was like, go for it, dude. And, but in that instant, I kind of realized, oh, wait. Because the metaphors abound out there. I mean, everywhere there's just metaphors, some cheaper than others. And the low-hanging fruit of this metaphor was too easy for me to resist. Because the idea that my son is going to go beyond me, 
beyond my accomplishments. That's all I need as one. As parents are hardwired hard hard to have our children go further than we be. Be the first in the family to go to college or become a doctor, whatever, you know, for our children to succeed beyond us. I think we all want. And so when my son said he was going to continue after a while and go to the sea, I, in that sense, I go, oh, I have a, I have a book here. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> and then when we went, I think that, to stop by the rock. Um, as he walked to the sea these next few days, I took a taxi out to meet him. And it's really discouraging when you walk and you realize you can take a cab in about a half hour when it takes three days to walk. And I, when I went out to meet him to see it, I just stood there and watched him come charging up the hill, his arms pumping his shirt off, sussler, and just like, and grin on his face and just receive him, you know, and then he allowed me at that point to receive him. That was a big deal for me. That was a big deal. Did the, you realize there was a point in which you realized this might be a book? Um, did Sam realize there might be a book? Was he resistant to the idea of being your sidekick, your protagonist? I, when I brought it up, I said, yeah, I think there's a, you know, a book here about us, you know, on the journey. And, like, and he said, I don't have to write anything, do I? <laughs> no. Okay, I don't care. <laughs> you, you mentioned going to cab, uh, by cab to the very end. Um, it reminds me that it's sort of a funny book. There's some various characters that come in and out of the story. There's a guy named Roger, who like always seems to be showing up in a cab. He's like walking at the same pace as you. He's usually showing up in a cab. Yeah, you meet all sorts of amazing people walking across the Camino from all over the world. They're fascinating people, and everybody's walking the Camino for some reason. And often we don't really know. We think we walk for one reason, but another emerges. You know. And anyway, yes, and you kind of. Organically, involved in traveling amongst this little pod of people, because there's an endless sea of people walking to varying degrees. And so we, we sort of form this loose pod of people, and you sort of meet every evening for dinner in the villages along the way. So, like Sam and I usually walk alone during the day, and then we would meet up with the, the, these folks. And but one of the guys, I'd say, is a guy named Roger. Sam would have nicknames for everyone we met. And this guy, Roger, seems to never walk. All he did was take a cab to the next town. Like, we all arrived sweating and exhausted after, you know, 15 miles in a 100 degree Spanish sun. And Roger was sitting there at the cafe. I'm like, Roger, what? And he's like, what is he doing there? But every day, he'd take a taxi to the next town. He was there for a broad picket. And oh, we only have to go on Roger with food um, and look down on him and judge him poorly. Uh, but, you know, he's a great guy. It was just like, what are you doing here, Roger? What, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing, anyway? Yeah, maybe next year he'll bring his son and we'll be called, like, I want to open up to some general questions in a second here, but one more um, thing I wanted to bring up uh, before we pivot to audience questions here is that years ago when I was first exchanging emails with you, uh, I made it known that I was based in Kansas when I'm not traveling, and you, unlike most people, said, Kansas? I love Kansas. Andrew, tell us why you love Kansas. I do love Kansas. I, um, in 1987, I made a movie uh, called Kansas. It's just, just a bad movie. And I don't know that you've seen it. But, uh, but we filmed it in Lawrence, Kansas, and for 10 weeks, uh, December 1987. And it was, I had the best time I've ever had in a movie. It was just a wonderful experience. I loved being here, I loved the people, I loved like, the land. I, and so I've always wanted to come back. And so today I, I flew into Kansas City just so I could drive out. And I stopped at Lawrence for lunch. And you know, it was just great to be back. I just I don't know why. I, 
found it very, I felt comfortable. And it means, yeah. Reading the new book, I wondered too if there's a connection uh, between the landscape because the landscape of Kent is quite similar to the part of Spain where you had your breakdown and started weeping and, and let go of fear the first time around. I made me out of here driving today that was gone once. That's good to know. All right, is, uh, we have some questions from the audience. Is there a system for navigating that? Oh, that's interesting. Advice for writing any books? Uh, I want to give your answer to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, if you're writing non memoirish type things, like I tend to write some combo travel memoir, you just have to tell You know, because all your lines are all I've tried to do. Like, trying to create the physical journey, and then an internal one that matches the physics of the constellation so it's radiated between each other, so that they mirror each other. And and you have to tell, be revealing in that aspect, because you can't ask someone to invest their time if you're not going to meet them. All you want is to be here to be sitting there laying in bed and you go, oh yeah, I feel like that. I know what that is. Oh, yeah, I see And then you have connection, and then we're not alone anymore. So that's what we're after. Right? So I remember in the first book I was writing, and it was about coming to terms with how do we have more inheritance Solitude in life and share intimacy with those who love. Like, how do we reconcile these two? Like, individuality and that, and I, it's impossible, I found, and yet we do it anyway, it's the only thing we can, right? So I was writing about this journey I was on, and, but then I, I started writing, like, what was going on underneath that? Was I feeling that? Was I experiencing? So I started writing again, typing, I'm going, oh, wow, this is much too close. No, I would never put this in the book. This is there's no wow, I'll just finish it here. Like I've never, never written a book. And I'm talking to myself while I'm writing, and then I read the paragraph at the end, of course. And it's like, well, there's no chapter about that paragraph. That's everything. You know? And so, and I know lots of writers that talk about it. I'm much more forthcoming on page often than I am in real life. My, my daughter, my 16 year old daughter, Willow, asked me something, and Sam is in the room. They said, well, if you want to ask me about my younger life, and Sam said, if you want to know dad, you can read his books. It's an odd thing to be more forthcoming on paper than you would be, but there's something about the intimacy of that. And I, don't, I never think about it. the reader. I'm sort of writing to a quiet version of myself when I'm writing. That person inside me, I'm right talking to him. You know, I'm trying to figure stuff out. Anyway, what, what do you mean? Well, to piggyback on that, I remember when I was reading your first book, I wrote a little note in the margin and said, wow, you, you're never too old to feel insecure, right? <laughs> so I think that you were able, I think what made you a good actor is that you conveyed a certain vulnerability that wasn't common in teen actors at the time, but in your writing, you're not afraid to be vulnerable, and there's a lot of that in, in all four of your books. Well, I think vulnerability gets that right. I think vulnerability is a great source of strength. You know, it's, it's, it's openness, and, and we're accessible to all our full strength and successes to ourselves, you know? And so I think vulnerability you know, is just openness in a certain way. And with openness, all we can come out. If I've got shelled off and done the thing, there's not much room for me to come out, really. There's just a shell of like a jerk, you know? And so I, I find that, and it gets a bad rap. And fear also gets a bad rap. Well, I think you're, you're very human when you're vulnerable. And I think that if you can sort of show your humanity through vulnerability, that's the other way to do it. Another thing I'll piggyback onto is that I think you wrote your way into being a writer. 
you know, I think um, sometimes yeah. the best writing, the best training for writing is just writing and then not being happy with it and writing again. And you did that for years before you had a byline, as I understand it. Yes, I think that you're absolutely right. Right, right. Yeah. You want to write, write. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I was traveling around the world. I would take notebooks. I just wrote stories of things that happened. I was a terrible journal keeper. I was just always, my journals were like, oh, I'm so lonely, food's so bad. You know. So I wrote travel stories for myself to help ground me and whatever while I was writing. While I was on the road. So I would go probably for 10 years before ever, with no intention or desire to be a travel writer until the day that I did have that desire. But yeah, so I'd written a lot of, and a lot, it turned out, a lot of the stories that I ended up actually putting in magazines I wrote in the years before. And I said, oh yeah, I'm there. Here. Well, welcome to your talk. Thank you. And what did your son think of this book? My son hasn't read the book yet. Yeah, when I was turning to my editor, I said, Sammy, you want to take a look at this and see if you're okay with it? And he got about 10 pages, he was like, that seems like a walk. <laughs> okay, dude. Uh, but we did do the audio book together. He read all his dialogue, you know, the audio book. So, and there were a few times when we were recording, he was like, I didn't say that. I'm like, well, you did now. <laughs> you had your chance. <laughs> That's hilarious. Other questions? Hi, We, there is no preparation. I mean, we just walked our, we just began. Which is really no good thing in shape. You can walk yourself in a shape. You can walk at whatever pace you want. And um, we, and it's fine. Uh, and you need very little, you need nothing. It's, it's a me, like I said, metaphors of becoming a bound. It's like, you need less than you think you do, as in life. You know what I mean? You just need a good pair of day walking shoes. You don't need heavy leather hike boots or anything like that. You just need, and you just begin. And there's so much online about it now, and there's so many, you know, it's easy to find out stuff. It's very, it's, the biggest challenge is overcoming the anxiety and the fear of going. It's just so daunting. It's like, oh my God, what are you going to go to space? No, it's very simple. And it is the step at a time. You know? Okay, here for it. I land in Spain. Oh my God, I'm tired. Okay. And, and it requires nothing except beginning. And it's always so hard to begin. You know, whenever we travel, right? It's like, oh my God, it's daunting. And you always go, well, that wasn't bad. I also love to experience a different culture. I think, you know, my soapbox is America is an amazing country. I love America. I wouldn't want to be anything but American. I'm proud to be American. But I think America is also a very fearful country in many ways. And I think we make a lot of our decisions. Whenever I make decisions based on fear, uh, not every fearful decision I've made is bad, but most of my bad decisions are based on fear. And I think America, many ways we're afraid of the world and we're told in many ways to be afraid of the world and who's out there in the world. I think 38 percent of Americans have passports. Half of us have used them. I think if that number were higher, we would view the world differently because when we go out into the world and we come back, we come back changed and we realize that person has a family, they have kids, they just want the best for their kids, they want their kids to go better than they had just like we do. And underneath all our surface differences, people are People. And what I found out in the world also is that many people in the world can, they may disagree with our government, but they very, they can see the difference between governments and people. They often say, I'm not, I'm not crazy about 
government does, but Americans are great. They're really polite, they're friendly, they take well, we love Americans. You know, whereas I think in America, we often stigmatize people with their government. And I think that's one, if we went there and met them, we kind of realized, oh no, they're just like me, except they look a little different. And I think that's a big deal. I think that's one of the values of travel. I think travel can change our places in the way we view the world. And I think, I don't think travel is about bucket lists or Instagram photos. I think travel is about connection. I'm a very solitary loner type person. I've connected to the world by traveling. It's in America, driving through Kansas, going back to Lawrence and talking to the kid at the diner who's waiting on me today and connecting with him. I think travel is all about connection. And I, whether it's in Kansas or whether it's in Spain or whether it's in you know, the Middle East or wherever it is, I, I think that seems valuable. And I think the greatest gift we give our children is creating little citizens of the world and to let them go on out into the world. The world is this wide, wondrous, largely safe place, in my experience. I think travel on foot. Travel on foot is a great way to do that because you experience communitas, oh, yes. the idea of shared effort. Of course. Yeah. Travel, I mean, and also, when you go out to the closing bath, like I always speak English, or I always speak American, and I go on the way to often I will ask for help. And the minute we ask for help, we're kind of we're brought down to the right size. You know, there's a humility in that, and there's a vulnerability in that, and there's an openness in that. And I've never been anywhere in the world where people have said no. Except you. But I'm not going to do it. It's okay. But you know what I mean? So I, I find that even when I don't need it, if I'm travel writing, because I'll, I'll go somewhere and I'm pretty, like I said, solitary person. I can go somewhere and be there for a week and never really talk to anybody and still have a great time. But if I travel writing, as you know, you need quotes, you need to talk to people. So I will just go, excuse me, do you speak English? Can you help me? And invariably, what do you need? What do you need? And you know, because everybody wants to, you know, and people are proud of them, they want to show you with it and all that stuff. So I find it wonderful honor to just kind of throw myself on the mercy of the world. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Andrew McCarthy's new book, Walking with Sam, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.